Good afternoon, uh, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, let me also welcome our C-SPAN audience and uh, the um, audience that is seeing us over Cato's live streaming. Uh, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host this afternoon. Um, let me also, before we begin, ask you please to turn your cell phones off or on a quiet mode. Thank you. Um, as the European crisis continues with no solution in sight, it's becoming increasingly clear that the problems are far more than economic. They're deep, structural, and constitutional. Stagnant growth, persistent high unemployment, and public distrust are threatening the very premises of the European project. Begun as a modest move toward economic liberalization among the nations of Western Europe, after the Second World War, the project has gone through several stages since then, especially after the integration of the nations in Eastern Europe following the collapse of European communism. Today, while some believe that still more integration is the solution, others argue that the current crisis is no accident, but instead is the natural result of naive expectations concerning the benefits of integration and centralization in a part of the world in which no one calls himself a European. We're fortunate to, to have with us today two experts to share with us their thoughts on these pressing issues. We'll begin with an address by Professor Václav Klaus, who uh, only two days ago stepped down from his post as president of the Czech Republic after two terms to become a distinguished senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. We'll then hear from uh, Dr. Uh, Uri Dadush, uh, Senior Associate and Director of the International Economics Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who will comment on President Klaus's remarks, after which President Klaus may wish to respond briefly before we open the floor for audience questions. You're all then invited uh, for lunch upstairs at the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Uh, before I introduce him, uh, let me note that uh, Professor Klaus's new book, uh, Europe, The Shattering of Illusions, which I understand is a rough translation from the Czech, a very rough translation, uh, is available for sale outside at a discount. Uh, and he'll be pleased to sign a copy for you. Uh, so feel free to take advantage of that. Uh, both of our speakers today have had illustrious careers, so I'll limit myself to just a few highlights. Uh, Václav Klaus is a hero of the revolution and an old friend of the Cato Institute, an economist by training uh, who studied at the Prague School of Economics, where he currently holds a professorship in finance. He was born in Czechoslovakia under Nazi occupation and grew up there under Soviet occupation. Uh, in the communist era, he was a researcher at the Institute of uh, Economics of the Czechoslovak uh, Academy of Sciences. He was later forced to leave the academy for political reasons and worked in various positions in the Czech uh, State Bank, Czechoslovak State Bank. Uh, after the Velvet Revolution of 1989, he began his political career as finance minister. At the end of 1990, he became the chairman of the Civic Forum, at that time uh, the country's strongest political entity. In April 1991, he co-founded the Civic Democratic Party and remained its chairman until December 2002. 
He won parliamentary elections in June 1992 and became prime minister of the Czech Republic, overseeing the velvet divorce of the Czechoslovak Federation. In 1996, he successfully defended his post as prime minister. After the breakup of his governing coalition, he became chairman of the Chamber of Deputies in 1998 for four years. He was elected as the president of the Czech Republic in February 2003 and re-elected for the second five-year term in February 2008, the post from which he just stepped down to join us here at Cato. We're honored to have him with us. Please welcome Professor Václav Klaus. Roger, thank you very much for the nice words. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, many thanks for organizing this gathering. I'm glad to be here again in Cato, where I have many friends. I highly appreciate the role Cato Institute has played in the last decades in defending freedom, free markets, and limited government. This is, as was mentioned by Roger, a special moment for me. On Thursday, my second term as president of the Czech Republic expired, and on Friday, the new president was inaugurated in my country. He has been my long-term political rival, arch enemy, I must say, <laughs> standing on the other side of the political and ideological barricade. Nevertheless, um, I can assure you that he will not weaken the, the existing excellent Czech-American relations, the existing Czech-American friendship and partnership. It is for me, with a high degree of probability, the end of my more than 23 years long career in the Czechoslovak and later Czech top political positions, a career lasting without interruption from the fall of communism and the moment of the Velvet Revolution until, until last week. So I start my new life here with you today. Uh, I was extremely honored to be invited to become a distinguished senior fellow at Cato and am eager to fulfill this, this role. This lecture is just the, the beginning. Um, I was asked to say a few words about, about Europe, and Europe has always been one of my main topics. Let me put the whole issue, um, the current European problems, into a broader perspective. More than a year ago, my book about Europe mentioned already here, uh, with the title European Integration Without Illusions, was published in Czech language and then translated into English, German, Italian, Spanish, Bulgarian, and Danish. And the British publisher called it Europe, the shattering of illusions 
which was not exactly my idea because I never had illusions about, about <laughs> European integration. It was not necessary to shatter my <laughs> illusions. Um, nevertheless, um, Roger, just I'm disappointed that, that the book is sold here at a discount. You know, I, I expected <laughs> to sell it here with some some additional, additional, <laughs> some, because there is a value added in, in, by being here. And so the, the, the British publisher called, called it the shattering of illusions, and, and, and the German publisher forced me to call it Europa braucht Freiheit, which means Europe needs freedom, which is something I, I don't mind, because this is, uh, this is, part of my, my message in this book. Nevertheless, the book reflects my frustration with the developments in Europe. It discusses the European institutional arrangements, institutional developments from the Second World War till the outbreak of the Eurozone debt crisis, as well as the very problematic current reactions to it and their enormous costs. It also argues against the naive and, uh, and excessively optimistic expectations of the economic benefits of territorial integration and centralization. This is one of the crucial chapters. Uh, those benefits which have been considered as the main argument in favor of the European integration process. And the book discusses um, the undemocratic consequences of denationalization and communitarization of Europe. All the available evidence suggests that the economic future will not be easy for those of us living in Europe together with our families, children and grandchildren, and have their, who have therefore a genuine, not only academic interests in the, in the European future. Um, I, I would like to, to state quite clearly, clearly that the Czech Republic is a part of Europe, a member of the European Union, and a non-member of the Eurozone. I deliberately differentiate these three entities. They are different. Uh, I am afraid that Americans sometimes uh, mix up uh, those, uh, those three terms. Uh, you can't be a member of Europe. Uh, there is no membership in Europe. There is a membership in man-made organization called the European Union, and it's necessary to differentiate those terms. Uh, what, um, what is relevant uh, for my country is the fact that uh, almost 85% of our exports go to Europe, to a region which undergoes both a protracted economic stagnation and an acute sovereign debt crisis. Even with our own freely floating Czech crown, we cannot fully disconnect ourselves from the economic trends in the, in, the rest of, in the rest of Europe. To be able to grow the Czech Republic as a textbook case of a small open economy, 
needs a healthy economic growth of its main trading partners. And uh, this is regretfully not the case these days. By the way, this morning, um, the Czech Stat Statistical Office announced the figure for the GDP growth in the last quarter of 2012, expected figure minus 0 0.2. Again, we can't escape from the, from the fate of, of, of the whole continent. Uh, the present economic situation in Europe is not an accident, is not accidental. It is a consequence of at least two things. It's a consequence of the deliberately chosen and gradually impaired European economic and social system on the one hand, and it's a consequence of the more and more centralistic and bureaucratically intrusive European Union institutional arrangements. They both form a fundamental obstacle to any further positive development, an obstacle which cannot be removed by marginal corrections or by eventually more rational short-term economic policies. The problems are deeper. As I said, I see the important part of the problem in the European economic and social system itself. It is more than evident that the overregulated economy, additionally constrained, constrained by a heavy load of social and environmental requirements, operating in a paternalistic welfare state atmosphere cannot grow. This burden is too heavy and the incentives to a productive work are too weak. If Europe wants to restart its economic development, it has to undertake a fundamental transformation, a systemic change, something we in Central and Eastern Europe had to do 20 years ago, something similar. The other part of the problem is the European integration model. The excessive and unnatural centralization, harmonization, standardization, and unification of the European continent based on the concept of an ever closer union is another obstacle to any positive development. Two days ago, I listened to the speech given by, by the Italian Minister of the Economy. And he, he made a point that to build a, such an integration was a necessity. I raised my hand and I, I asked, uh, what do you mean such an integration? The current form of uh, European integration is an historical accident. It could have many developments, it could have many, many variants, and I'm sure that this one is, is, a, is a wrong one. These uh, complex issues deserve to be discussed from many perspectives, but it is evident that they found their climax in the attempt to monetary, monetarily unify the whole continent.
This was the moment when, to use the economic terminology, when the marginal costs of the European integration project started to visibly exceed its benefits. This evident failure, and it is appropriate to call it a failure, was inevitable, was expected, and was well understood but men, by many of us in advance. Its consequences, especially for economically weaker European countries, which were used to undergo unpleasant but much needed and unavoidable adjustment bringing devaluations of their currencies repeatedly in the past were well known in advance as well. All economists who deserve to be called economists um, were aware of the fact that Greece and some other countries were doomed to fail having been imprisoned in such a system. History gives us similar examples, many examples. The case of Argentina is, I hope, still not, not forgotten. And it was easier to solve it because its currency board is a weaker and more easily dissolvable form of Monetary, of monetary union. The benefits promised as a result of accepting a common currency never arrived. The assumed increase in international trade and in financial transactions was relatively small and was more than offset by the costs of this arrangement. In good weather, I mean, in good weather, in economic sense. Even the non-optimal currency areas can function as all kinds of fixed exchange rate regimes did for some time. When bad weather comes, as the financial and economic crisis at the end of the last decade, all the inconsistencies, weaknesses, inefficiencies, discrepancies, imbalances, and disequilibria become evident, and the monetary union ceases to properly function. This can't be considered a surprise. In the past, all fixed exchange rate regimes, like the Bretton Woods system, needed exchange rates realignments sooner or later, which is another argument found in every elementary economic textbook. The expectations, better to say wishes or dreams, that a very homogeneous European, heterogeneous European economy would be made homogeneous by means of monetary unification were proved to be wrong. The European economies have diverged, not converged, since the, the introduction of the euro. The elimination of one of the most important economic variables of the exchange rate from the existing economic system led to a certain blindness 
of politicians, economists, bankers, and all other economic, economic agents. Uh, I have a personal experience in this respect. Uh, some of you remember that 20 years ago, there was a dissolution of another monetary, political, and fiscal union called Czechoslovakia. And I was organizing the split of, of Czechoslovakia. And at the beginning of February this year, months ago, we in the Czech Republic remembered the 20th anniversary of the monetary disintegration with Slovakia. Uh, our experience is quite clear. We were together for 70 years, but we had to accept that the institutional integration, or to call it nominal integration, was not sufficient for the elimination of economic differences of both, both countries. There were, of course, other reasons for the split of the former Czechoslovak Federation, but the economic ones were very important. As the last federal minister of finance, I, I know something uh, about it. Some people in Europe do not want to look at it seriously. At the recent EU-Asia summit in Laos, in in November 2012, I found it almost fascinating when the Spanish Minister of Foreign Affairs stated there quite officially as regards the OIRA, and I quote, we were not warned in advance about the possible consequences of the European common currency. This is a statement he was telling the presidents and prime ministers of Asian countries, which was another irony. I must say, everyone was warned. Some people just did not listen. Let's not be misled. When discussing the current European problems, it is wrong to concentrate on the achievements of failures of individual European countries, e.g. On, on, on Greece or any other country in the European South. Greece did not bring about the current European problem. Greece, on the contrary, is the victim of the Eurozone system of one currency. The system is a problem, not, not Greece. Greece made just one tragic error, to enter the Eurozone. <laughs> everything else, okay, everything else was the, 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 the usual behavior of, of Greece, which I, and I suppose we all, don't have a right to criticize. Greece's degree of economic efficiency or inefficiency and its propensity to live with a sovereign debt was and should have been well known in, to, to anyone. Uh, letting Greece leave the Eurozone in an organized, well-prepared way, and we have some experience with, with 
letting Slovakia leave our Czechoslovak Federation. I think letting Greece leave the Eurozone would be the beginning of a long journey of this country to a healthy economic, economic future. I have no ambitions to change Greece. I want to change the EU institutional arrangements. That's, that's a different project and a different program. The Greeks hopefully already understood that one size does not fit all. And I only wish the same would be understood by leading EU politicians. I don't see it, however. Their way of thinking is based on an almost communist type of reasoning. Economic laws do not exist. Politics may dictate economics. That was the standard thinking and mindset uh, in the communist era. Uh, people like me were raised in an era when such a mode of thinking was dominant in communist countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Some of us dare to express our disagreement with it already in the past. We were considered enemies then, we are considered enemies now again. Europe is ripe for a fundamental decision. Should we continue believing in the dogma that politics can dictate economics and uh, continue defending the common currency and other similar arrangements at whatever costs or should we finally accept that we have to return to economic rationality? The answer to such a question given by the overwhelming majority of European politicians until now has been yes, we should continue. It is our task to tell them that the consequences of such a policy will be higher and higher costs for all of us. At one, at one moment, these costs will become intolerable and unbearable. I am convinced they should say no. As a side remark, Roger, I, I, I would say that I'm afraid that the US administration and the US think tanks as well do not, do not send them European politicians, such a clear message. <laughs> what we need in Brussels, in Europe, are not more frequent summits in Brussels, but a fundamental transformation of our thinking and of our behavior. Europe has to undertake a systemic change, a, a a paradigma, paradigm shift. Coming to such a decision needs a genuine political process, not the approval of a sophisticated document prepared behind closed doors. The solution must arise as an outcome of political deba debates in individual EU member countries. It must be generated by the people, 
by the demos of these countries. And there is no demos in Europe. It is fashionable here and in Europe um, uh, now to speak about a crisis. But crisis is in Schumpeter's definition and Schumpeter belongs partly to my country, as some of you may know, not just to Austria and America, because uh, Josef Alois Schumpeter was born in southern Moravia. Uh, so in Schumpeter's definition, um, crisis is a process of creative destruction. Not everything can be saved and maintained. Something must be destroyed or left behind in this process, especially the wrong ideas. We should get ripped of utopian dreams, of irrational economic activities, and of their promotion by European governments. Part of this implies that even some states must be left to fall. The opponents of such positions keep saying that such a solu solution would be costly. I see differently. The prolongation of the current muddling through is more costly. The costs the Europeans are afraid of are already there. They should be called sunk costs. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my today's, today's message. More about, about the same issue can be found in my book, sold at discount here. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, I think it's, it's more clearly defined there. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, President Klaus. Uh, here at the Cato Institute, we try to bring a variety of uh, views on a given issue, and it's in that spirit that we're going to hear now uh, from uh, Dr. Uri Dadush, who uh, just arrived last night from Rome, as uh, two days ago, uh, uh, President Klaus arrived uh, from Prague. Um, as, note, as I noted at the outset, uh, Dr. Dadish, uh is a senior associate and director of the Carnegie Endowments International Economics Program. In that capacity, he focuses on trends in the global economy and is currently also tracking developments in the Eurozone crisis. He earned bachelor's and master's degrees in economics at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and did his doctorate in business economics at Harvard. Before joining Carnegie, uh, Dr. Dadish experience uh, was split between, evenly between public and private sector, where he led a number of business turnaround situations. In the private sector, he was president and CEO of the Economist Intelligence Unit and Business International, part of the Economist Group, uh, Group Vice President International for Data Resources, Inc., now Global Insight, and a consultant with McKinsey & Company in Europe. 
In the public sector, he served as the World Bank's Director of International Trade and Director of Economic Policy. He also serves concurrently as the uh, Director of the Bank's World Economy Group, leading the uh, preparation of the World Bank's flagship reports on the international economy for over 11 years. He's the author of four recent books and reports, including Inequality in America, Facts, Trends, and International Perspective, Currency Wars, and Paradigm Lost, the Euro in Crisis. Please welcome Dr. Yuri Dadush. Dadush. Well, uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. And thank you very much for uh, the invitation. Of course, it's a great honor. And, uh, but unfortunately, a difficult act to follow, I have to say, uh, President Klaus's uh, uh, presentation. Um, I'm going to make uh, four points. And let me tell you what they are, and then I will uh, develop them. First of all, I share President Klaus's view that the Euro crisis is far from over and that at best, many years of slow growth and high unemployment lie ahead uh, for the European periphery. Second, I do not believe that a disassembly of the Euro is a rational response to the crisis given the cost. Third, the workings of the U.S. Monetary Union in dealing with a similar shock, though far from perfect, point the way forward for Europe. Fourth and last, with the U.S. example in mind, the Eurozone needs to accelerate reforms designed both to deal with the current crisis and avoid uh, future ones. Uh, so I'm taking quite a different position from uh, President Klaus, as is evident for my points. Although, actually, there is more similarity in thought and approach than perhaps is suggested uh, by these points. Let me elaborate. Uh, first point, the crisis is far from over. Uh, let me confess, I'm a French economist. Uh, nobody's perfect. <laughs> And let me also say, formally, that I supported the creation of the euro. When I was running a business uh, in Europe and trying to juggle 20 plus currencies uh, at the time, it seemed to me a smart move. I was misled, like many others, by a long period of moderate growth and low inflation that characterized the first 10 years of the single currency. But as President Klaus writes in his refreshing and iconoclastic book, Europe, the Shattering of Illusions, and as he repeated today, in good weather, even the non-optimal currency area can function. But when the bad weather comes, all the weaknesses become evident and the monetary union ceases to properly function. Like many others, I have now realized that the conditions for European Monetary Union were absent, and now believe that proceeding with European Monetary Union was premature. 
it may have come 20 years too early, or perhaps even longer. I spent the last few days in Italy, which is reeling from the totally inconclusive result of its elections, and where the economic situation is dire, and it is even worse in Spain and Greece. I also believe that political tensions may escalate to the point where one or more countries leaves European Monetary Union. The tail risk of Euro collapse has not gone away. <clears throat> Despite Mr. Draghi's solemn promise, the political platform on which his promise is based may be swept away from under his feet. Let me go to the second point. However, despite all that, the disassembly of the Eurozone is not a rational course of action. From the perspective of the European community, helping Greece leave the Euro and default in an orderly fashion may indeed be a viable option. And it may even be the best course for Greece. I don't disagree with that. However, doing so for Italy and Spain much larger economies is another proposition altogether. The inevitable sovereign default that would follow would be huge. An outright breakup of the euro and probably a disorderly one would follow. And it would be a calamity for Europe and the world. Another layman-sized shock without the monetary and fiscal tools to respond, likely leading to a global banking crisis and the repeat of the Great Depression we have so far avoided. Therefore, in my view, the answer lies in how to make the euro work better. At least we should give it our best shot to avoid that disaster. This leads me to my third point, which are the lessons from America. I think the best way to convey to an American audience how the Eurozone could, make, could be made to work better is to compare the US and European reaction to the Great Recession, exploring why the US Monetary Union, which is the largest in the world, while flawed, has done so much better in handling the crisis than the European Monetary Union. So here are some important facts about the US and European performance following the crisis. Roughly five years after the Great Recession reared its head, the US is in the midst of a gradual but firm recovery, while Europe is deeply mired in recession. US GDP is well above its pre-crisis peak and growing again, while it has seen essentially no growth in Europe. The US financial debacle exposed deep fault lines and recovery has been painfully slow. However, when it needed to, the United States was able to deploy significant fiscal stimulus. Monetary policy was loosened much more aggressively and earlier than in Europe. By contrast, the European periphery saw soaring interest rates and all countries across Europe were forced quickly into fiscal austerity measure by three things, the inability of the periphery to borrow, German conservatism, and the inexistence of anything resembling 
a central government. In the United States, the TOP program, combined with deployment of the FDIC for smaller banks, helped redress the capacity of US banks to lend while largely paying for itself. European banks in the periphery countries and in many instances in the core are by contrast still in sharp deleveraging mode and in need of government support in many cases. States that saw the largest housing bubbles, Florida, Arizona, and Nevada, for example, are still today suffering from the aftershock. But their housing prices adjusted more quickly and are now coming back, and their GDP and employment are growing again, thanks in part to large automatic stabilizers that are part and parcel of a federal system of taxation and social programs. By contrast, Spain, Ireland, and Greece, which saw a comparable housing boom and bust, have seen a huge surge in unemployment, which is still rising, and the cumulative GDP loss is much greater. Unemployment in the housing bubble states in the Sun Belt rose, but was kept in check by various factors, including more rapid shifts in immigration and emigration, more flexible wages and rules than in Europe, than in Europe and the absence of a sovereign debt crisis. American state also never saw the large decline in competitiveness of the European periphery that came with the establishment of the Euro. In the Eurozone, the introduction of the currency, of the common currency, was associated with a decline in the interest rates and a confidence boom in the periphery, which raised prices and wages relative to the core adjusted for productivity. To, the, to an extent, this was a one-time phenomenon that hopefully will not repeat if the euro uh, remains. Crucially, all the European periphery countries saw their government credit dry up. By contrast, for example, Florida, which also saw many bank failures, retained its AAA rating. As already mentioned, by and large, the state governments were sheltered from problems in their banking system by federal mechanisms. US states, of course, have been helped by the fact that they adopted tough balanced budget provisions long ago. Now, while government debt in the nations of the European periphery is over 100% of GDP on average, it is less than one-tenth of that in US states. The US has its counterpart to this debt in a large federal debt, which the Eurozone does not have. But one important lesson of the crisis is that nations that retain their currency and their ability to devalue can carry larger debt up to a point. Witness the low interest rates still being paid by Japan and the UK whose government accounts are in even worse shape than that of the uh, US federal government. This then leaves my last, fourth and last point, which is about policy. The implications of this comparison 
I know there are limitations uh, to the comparison. I know these are different situations. But the implications, I think, are nevertheless fairly clear for the Europeans. And they require both an immediate response and a long-term institution building response. To contain the present crisis, unfortunately, there is no viable alternative to fiscal austerity measures in the periphery. <coughs> what needs to be understood is that these austerity measures are needed not just to redress the government accounts, but also to restore competitiveness. In the absence of the exchange rate tool, containment of domestic demand is the major instrument available to achieve external balance and reduce prices and unit labor costs relative to trading partners. However, the pain can be reduced and the likelihood of resumed growth increased if the periphery enacts structural reforms that make labor and product markets more competitive and flexible, more resembling those of um, prevalent in US states. The core countries can also help by taking measures that stimulate demand and allow their wages to rise. In addition, Greece needs more debt forgiveness. Spain and Ireland need help from the ESM funds to recapitalize the bank. Monetary policy can play a big role and the so-called draggy put has to remain, so, and so do the large-scale liquidity injections into the European central banks. Institution building is also crucial, both as a confidence-building measure now and to avoid a repeat of the crisis in the future. Joint bank supervision must be complemented by Eurozone-wide deposit insurance and mechanisms for bank rescues. First steps towards automatic stabilizer and a tighter fiscal union should be undertaken, such a as a Eurozone-wide employment unemployment insurance scheme and increased infrastructure funds financed through a share of value-added taxes or income tax receipts, for example. Conclusion. Um, I'll quote again from President Klaus's book. He said, and he repeated today, he wrote and he repeated today, Jacques Delors and his collaborators began a quarter of a century ago to unify Europe, to build a new construct which found the international institutional incarnation of the European Union. Integration turned into unification, liberalization into centralization, harmonization into standardization, pro-competitive policy into excessive regulation, healthy diversity into rigid uniformity. This did not bring any positive results, just the opposite. I respect that view, but I disagree. For both political and economic reasons, I remain a believer in deeper European integration. There is indeed a democratic deficit in the way the European project is run, as President Klaus argues, and it must be fixed. But what cannot ignore the fact that the Euro remains widely supported in Italy just now. A post-election survey shows that 74% of Italians support staying in the Euro, and only 16% would support a return 
to deliver. So, like President Klaus, I recognize the shortcomings, but end up in a very different place. While he, while he calls for a no to the euro and for going back, uh, I believe that the only rational way forward is to deal with the crisis with all the means available at our disposal, while also building stronger underpinnings for the common currency survival in the long term. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Dadush. Um, I gather, uh, President Klaus, that uh, there were uh, comments just made that you might wish to comment upon. From here, from here. Come on, come right up here, briefly, and then we'll open it up to uh, the audience. Well, I, I have to, to to make a comment, really, because what Dr. Dadush is presenting here is the standard EU establishment view. You know, this, this is for me, I, this is something I have been fighting for years and decades, so I disagree with 100% of the, of the words he used here this, this morning. So what else to say? So this is, this is a totally disagreement, missing the point and not taking the issue seriously. I, I am not an uninvolved observer from the World Bank or such institutions. You know, I am a person who lives in the heart of Europe with my family, children, grandchildren. So I am really interested in what is going on there. This is not for me an academic exercise. You know. So when you say that everything is okay, but the introduction of the euro, of the common currency, was a premature solution, I can't accept that term premature. It's a total understatement. It misses the point. It was a tragic and wrong decision. It was not a premature decision. We, we have to look at it clearly and, uh, and correctly. It, it created dramatic, it has dramatic consequences for Europe. So to, to neutralistically say premature decision is really just interesting for an academic scholar, not, not for a person who, who lives in, on the European continent. Third, you speak about the lessons from America. Well, I studied the American lesson a very long time, you know. And uh, I still remember 10 years old, a National Bureau of Economic Research study with the title, how long did it take the United States to become an optimal currency area? Maybe some of you remembers that study. And you may remember that the answer was that it took 150 years and it was necessary to fight a civic war in the meantime. And, and the last sentence of the study is that hopefully it will not uh, last that long in, in Europe. So to speak innocently about a premature uh, decision is, is for me really, really unacceptable. Uh, you recommend uh, the acceleration of the European unification process a la United States. Again, the, for me, unacceptable idea. Simply, we, I mean the people in Europe, do not want to create a unified continent a la United States of America. So to give us such recommendation is 
anti-democratic, violating the, the, the freedom of uh, countries to decide their own future. And please don't give us such advices. <laughs> I, I, I simply can't accept it. We are not a nation in Europe. And then um, about, you mentioned the necessity to, to make uh, policy changes. I, I tried. I try to explain that it's not. It's not about policy changes. It's a deeper issue. It's about a systemic change. You know, I lived for decades in a in a, in a communist era, and I remember Mr. Brezhnev was permanently organizing uh, committees for introducing reforms in the communist system, and we then tried to tell our political leaders, please, this is not the issue of reforms. We must have a fundamental systemic change. It finally happened, and I hope it will happen in Europe as well. Um, you say, again, for me, it's an unacceptable way of looking at things. Europe needs, uh, not Europe, Greece needs something. I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's in connection with the Cato philosophy. I, 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 maybe I was wrong, but I, I quoted at the beginning, uh, I said at the beginning of my speech that Cato believes in freedom, free markets, and minimal government. I, I, I don't understand Cato as an institution which, uh, which um, believes in giving, giving advices to sovereign governments uh, by a group of, of sophisticated scholars. So please, let, let accept democracy as the prevailing principle and don't give advice to anyone. <laughs> Definitely institutions like the World Bank do not belong to the current world. So they, they should have been <laughs> eliminated decades ago. But, but nevertheless, it's possible to... To do, and I remember I made a famous statement at, at the World Bank conference in, in the year 1990, uh, when I was pushed to to accept an, um, an advice or or how to do things in my country and even to pay for it. And I and I make a famous statement which Milton Friedman. Uh, renamed as Klaus Law. I said, I, I was Minister of Finance then, I said, I'm not ready to pay hard money for soft advice. <laughs> so, so please don't give advice to countries. So like, let's make a change. You, made, you mentioned one figure about Italy. 70% of Italians want to, to stay in the EU. Why? I, I, don't, I don't mind and I, I accept it. And Nevertheless, I, I must tell you that the latest opinion poll in the Czech Republic says how many people want to, to introduce the euro. Six percent. Six. <laughs> Not 16 or 60 or 66. Six. And how many people want to, to eventually, sometimes in the future, uh, enter the eurozone? Sixteen. Which means six plus 16 means... 78% say no, never. So to play with those figures is, is a little bit more complicated. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Just one minute. Just one minute. Yes, yes. Yeah. Just one clarification. <clears throat> First of all, I have lived 25 years of my life in Europe. I did not have the privilege of living in the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, 
but I have lived in uh, and worked in Italy, Belgium, and the UK. And also, uh, I'm an academic, perhaps. I ran uh, two of the largest economic consulting firms as businesses in Europe over many years. I don't have children and grandchildren, but I have uh, four siblings and uh, several brothers and sisters-in-law and nephews who live in, in Italy uh, or France or other countries. And unfortunately, several, several of them are unemployed. So uh, I feel uh, the crisis, Mr. President, uh, just uh, like you do, and very, very deeply. Thank you. All right. We're now going to hear from you. Um, Two uh, words before we do. Please wait till the microphone gets to you. Identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, who your question is directed to, and please a question and not a statement. Uh, right over here, Adam. Adam Powell from the University of Southern California. Uh, Professor Klaus, uh, three years ago you wrote, the European Monetary Union is not at risk of being abolished, period. Uh, do you still believe that? And uh, European Union is not what? Is still, the, the European Union is not at risk of being abolished. That's from uh, what you wrote uh, in 2010. Uh, do you still believe that? And uh, if not, at what point do you think Europeans and particularly German taxpayers will uh, decline to uh, pay any price or bear any burden? for the European Monetary Union? Well, I, I, I probably said something like that because I, I, I do not believe that the, the, the necessary thing is to liquidate to liquidate European Union. I have never suggested anything like that. I, I think it's still possible to make, to make fundamental changes inside the, the structure of the of the European Union but but I am absolutely convinced that we are in a blind alley and uh, in a blind alley you can't go forward you can't go to a deeper unification in a blind alley you must turn back you must return somewhere and to the last crossroad and, and make a, a different decision so my suggestion in Europe is to, to accept that we are in a blind alley, that we have to return back. The question is how far? Right here, Danny. No, no right here. Thank you. Uh, Warren Coates, International Monetary Fund. Uh, President Klaus, uh, you will remember several months ago you hosted a wonderful meeting of the Mount Pelerin Society in Prague. I'd like to thank you for an excellent meeting. At that meeting, our friend uh, Jesus de Soto from Spain uh, characterized the EU, I'm sorry, he characterized the Euro zone as second best to the gold standard and uh, a system that brought gold standard-like discipline to his country of Spain which for the first time in a long time was moving in the direction of liberalization and reform. Would you uh, 
express the same disdain for the gold standard, uh, which is based on national currencies but an international monetary system, that you do for the euro. In Prague, at the Mont Pelerin Society meeting, I expressed my disagreement with that that view. Uh, simply, I, 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 as an as an economist, academic economist, macroeconomist, I I can write a, a piece about gold standard uh, things like that. But practically, uh, I think it's not a meaningful solution. So I am not interested in that. And to the uh, the wrong view of some. Uh, classical liberals, um, um, libertarians um, in Europe, in Spain, and that, um, that, um, that, uh, that uh, such a system could help. I, I simply, I don't believe in that, in that solution. Sorry. Right, this gentleman with his hand up. Good afternoon, Mr. Klaus. It is now almost a quarter of a century. If you could identify yourself. My name is Ulrich Hever. It is now almost a quarter of a century that uh, we assisted you and your colleagues, Mr. Kocharnik, Mr. Trishka, Mr. Rudlovchak, Mr. Weigel, in the transition from a centrally planned to a market economy. At that time, you made a point saying Czechoslovakia is not interested in introducing market-oriented economy, but a market economy. This was a similarly strong position. And I'm glad to see that today you say the same, you have the same position about the euro. You're also very right that uh, there is no excuse for not having foreseen the consequences because the discussions were ongoing. In the 60s, the devaluation of the German market in 61, the Bretton Woods, the Smithsonian uh, agreement, the debates whether the euro should come possibly a monetary union at the end of full harmonization of economic and fiscal policy or whether the currency union could be used as an instrument to achieve that goal was clearly discussed. There's no if and but. It was written about, it was discussed that there could be no illusions. Now, since we have the euro, and since you say we need a fundamental stepping back, removing from the alley and start anew, a new paradigm you used, I very much agree with that. However, could you be a little bit more detailed or give you a sketch, give you a view how that could look? Let me just throw up one idea what, what, I want, what I'm after. For example, if in 30, 40, 50 years the European Union had by then decided that a federal budget is needed, not only now like 1% of the of the budget is the federal budget, but let's say 30, 40, or even 60%. Would that be acceptable for you? Do you see that as a survival of a monetary union in 40, 50 years? Would you get rid of the euro first and move towards that goal? Could you see that countries in the European Union live next to each other without having similar standards of living? Could you be a little bit explicit how you would see the future from now on? You didn't uh, announce your position or your... your First, uh, when you ask uh, in English 
about a debate which was done in Europe um, better in, in German because what I was fighting was uh, uh, I was fighting the, the, the concept the, the concept of the soziale Marktwirtschaft. Yeah, it, it sounds much better in German than in English. So, so it um, and I was fighting the idea of the soziale Marktwirtschaft as a wrong economic and social philosophy, and I, I, I was defending the markets without adjectives. I still keep the same position, and uh, I must say when I suggested something like that in Germany in the last two decades, uh, the audience was not happy. In the in the last two three years, one speech in Germany after another, when I when I mention uh, that project to get rid of the soziale Marktwirtschaft, the audience started to applaud. So I think we will finally win, and then so that's my point. Um, yeah, I fully agree that 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 the plus and. Uh, uh, cons, uh, pluses and minuses of, of the monetary unification that it was discussed. Of course, we participated in those discussions as, as well. Um, but uh, but uh, one thing is whether it was discussed at the, the academic level or whether whether the politicians accepted those discussions. And I am afraid to say that not. I discussed it many times with your chancellor, Helmut Kohl. He was not ready to discuss the technical details of a monetary union. For him, it was a political project, and he simply wanted to introduce it. So the discussion definitely, definitely existed. And then, but but uh, whether the discussion was relevant for the decision making is an, another issue. Uh, the future of the eurozone, I. I Simply, I, I can imagine that there, there is an optimal currency area in Europe, accepting all the uh, Robert Mandel's preconditions for having an optimal currency area, but not for 17 countries. We can very easily imagine to have a good monetary integration, monetary union for, I don't know, six, eight, Possibly, I don't know how many countries, uh, but 17, definitely, definitely not. So the question is whether we should continue with this project, which is uh, debilitating the European economy, or say that it would be better to let some countries go out because there is no future. I, I don't believe, I'm a not believer in the, in the internal devaluation as a project for countries like Greece, to, the possibility to decrease wages and, and salaries increase by 35% is, is an unimaginable project for me. It was done in Latvia. But Latvia is a post-communist country close to Russia, still afraid of, of the possibility that something happened with it. So the Latvians were ready to accept in, in 2007, 2008 such a solution. I don't think that Greeks and, and some other Southern Europeans are, are ready to do the same. So, so I think it would be a, a solution for them. I, I wanted to keep the Czechoslovak crown together even, even after the solution of Czechoslovakia. But it simply it was not possible, and uh, Slovakia wanted to devalue the currency. We didn't have such a motivation, so to split the currency 
excellent solution. And uh, and when someone discusses now that it's it would be much more difficult with with Greece now than what we did with Czech Republic and Slovakia, it's definitely not true. Greece is approximately two percent of the European economy. Slovakia was one third of the Czechoslovak economy, so, which means the involvement uh, of the two parts of the of the federation with the other was much bigger than the situation in is Greece and Europe. So, I am absolutely sure that it's possible to let one, two, three countries to go out of the eurozone, and everything would be better. And as a general question. What uh, uh, I was not sure whether your question is an analytical one, what I expect, or a normative one, what I would consider uh, an, an optimum solution about the future of Europe. My analysis is analysis. My forecast is a very negative one. Everything will continue without any any change. But the cost will grow, grow, and at one moment they will be unbearable. That's my expectation. That's another thing is my normative position. What I think would be would be better, and that that's for for another lecture next time at Cato. Mm -hmm. Next time, yes. immature in their administrative and political uh, development where, and are not doing well, whereas the northern countries, the Scandinavian countries, Netherlands, Austria, Germany are doing quite well. Austria has uh, unemployment now of 4.5%. We might like that ourselves. So what would be your comment about the validity of this concept, which would presumably mean that countries have to learn new skills. Well, there's no question that any uh, kind of numerical objective measure of um, uh, institutional strength, governance, um, la uh, functioning of labor markets, flexibility, etc. If you look at uh, uh, some of the standard widely used measures produced by the World Economic Forum, uh, by the World Bank, by others. Uh, there is a large gap in uh, the institutional capacity of country, a country like Greece. And in, in some respects, for example, on labor market performance, in a country like Italy or Spain, they are very, very low. Uh, down the uh, the scale uh, compared to uh, most of the uh, northern Europeans, uh, so that is a fact, and uh, the uh, um, uh, the fact that they cannot devalue their currency, you know, on a regular basis to offset that, is part of the reason that this big competitiveness loss uh, has happened. Um, I'm actually not that distant from President Klaus in terms of the concerns that this situation might persist and eventually at some point may become unbearable. But I think in terms of policy, uh, the only rational course of action now is to 
persevere and try and accelerate the reforms. And, and some significant changes have been made. Uh, in Spain, there have been significant uh, labor market reform. In Italy, much less. Uh, in Greece, you, you haven't had the institutional reforms uh, uh, nearly as effective, but the sheer pressure of austerity is causing significant declines in labor cost. Um, so in other words, with enormous pain uh, and great difficulty, uh, these countries are moving gradually, some faster than others, uh, towards becoming uh, more competitive and, and towards, uh, towards these reforms. So the, the hope is that in the, in the present circumstances, given enough time, uh, given enough support over a period of three, four, five years, these reforms will, con will begin to have an impact. Uh, that is the hope. I see that as a much better alternative than trying to go back on the euro. I simply, while I agree with uh, President Klaus about Greece, that it may be possible to engineer a, uh, a relatively, uh, a relatively undisruptive, relatively undisruptive exit of Greece from the Eurozone. I don't think that's possible for uh, Italy and Spain. Uh, a short response. Uh, first, first um, discussing permanently Greece here. Again, I, am I, I have to repeat my argument that Greece is not guilty. What is wrong is the system. That's my. I happen to be at an international banking and financial conference in Greece. In the moment, Greece announced two years later than the rest of the current Eurozone countries announced uh, to enter the Eurozone. Um, and um, there, and it was an incredible story. So the, we we decided to change the program of the conference, and we asked all the uh, in room sitting uh, Greek bankers and financial experts to explain to us. There were several Americans there to explain the situation, and the CEO of the biggest Greek bank came to the floor to the to the microphone and announced, "My biggest uh, Greek." Uh, bank uh, decided to help the possibility to enter the eurozone by announcing this morning that our prime prime rate goes down from 16 to 9% i would expect that uh, all the economists here would say it's a joke it it it's, it's can't be true that was the way how Greece entered the Eurozone, using such methods. We know, we know that we can change the, the, the interest rate half a percent, I don't know how much, from 16 to 9 percent overnight. So, so that was the way how Greece entered the Eurozone. But devaluation, devaluation, devaluation. As an economist, uh, you know, I must say that I consider the exchange rate as the most important price in the economy. And, and, and to, to block to fix that price, not reflecting the, the different economic situations, is, is a tragic Tragic mistake. Very interesting study. Um, someone studied uh, the, the degree of devaluation of, um, of um, European Eurozone currencies in the 35 years 
before before the entry of the euro. So from the year 1963 to the 31st of December 1998, 35 years, the average devaluation of, of um, currencies like Italian, French, Spanish, and so on, was from 65 to 85% in those the whole idea of the Eurozone was based on the idea that this development is forgotten. And now, starting on the 1st of January 1999, there will be no devaluations and everything else will, will change. It's such an economic nonsense. I think Economics 101 would, would say to, to all the finance ministers of Europe that it's a tragic mistake. It happened simply. I, I don't think that we can improve the situation by introducing the German time hearts, hearts reforms of the labor market as an escape from, from eliminating the possibility of a currency exchange rate realignment. Impossible, not, not really even interesting. John Fonte. Thank you. Uh, John Fonte, the Hudson Institute. It's a question for Mr. Dadush. Uh, you may, I want to pick up on the democracy deficit. You said, well, we do have a democracy deficit. We have to fix it. Um, well, some of the reforms have been suggested. Uh, federal budget control are actually anti-democratic or post-democratic would move away from democracy or move away from consent of the people. So I don't expect a long answer here, but in the direction of how we fix it, could you, could you give some outline of how, how the Europe's democracy deficit, which is recognized by everybody, Joschka Fischer and uh, the, Humboldt, the famous Humboldt speech uh, more than a decade ago and so on. So could you give some direction on how we fix the democracy deficit? Thank you. Uh, if we could have our panelists short answer so we can get a few more questions in. Well, ju just very briefly also because this is not exactly my area of expertise, but uh, I mean, there are two things. One is uh, to devolve more authority to the European Parliament, which the Lisbon Treaty has done, and I know the President Klaus was a very reluctant signatory of the Lisbon Treaty, um, more, uh, more devolution of power to the European Parliament, and, uh, uh, you know, where necessary, um, more use of referenda, and more of this is happening now. Uh, the uh, uh, UK is proposing a, a referendum, uh, some of the new Italian politicians are, are, are proposing, uh, Beppe Grillo is, pro is proposing a referendum on the euro. I think this should go forward. Uh, yes, right here. Uh, hello, my name is Maxim Karluk. I'm CYP, uh, Atlas Core Think Tank Links Fellow. I come from Belarus, and as you probably know, there is a new integration development now, the so-called Eurasian Economic Union. Currently, three countries are participating, Belarus, Russia, and Kazakhstan. And they, they have already created a customs union, common economic area, and probably in a few years, they're trying to create the Eurasian Economic Union. And they say that they're using the EU experience, like best practices, to create it. So uh, I, I'm asking whether, I mean, whether, whether there are best practices to learn from and what, in general, what do you think about this idea of Eurasian Economic Union? Probably more countries will join it as well. Thanks. 
Well, I think that Europe is an is almost a controlled experiment, uh, which suggests that it's a wrong idea. And when the Americans here uh, recommend uh, the deeper, deeper unification, I would suggest to the Americans to to start taking seriously the NAFTA arrangements. And why to stop at the at the free trade area with Canada and Mexico? Why not to introduce a new currency, NAFTA <laughs> currency? Uh, because that that's the same suggestion you are telling me and telling us in Europe. Please take it seriously. <laughs> okay, uh, this uh, if it is such a the excellent solution. This lady, this lady right over here. We haven't had. Thank you. Irina Gilevska, Macedonian TV. Uh, Mr. President, uh, while you're being, uh, I said, Irina Gilevska, Macedonian TV, if somebody Macedonian didn't hear. TV. From Macedonia. Mr. President, you know about the name dispute between Greece and Macedonia. You know, be between the uh, dispute between Macedonia and Greece, you know. Uh, uh, what do you think, uh, how do you comment that one member state uh, is dictating the name of the candidate state and the European institution failed to protect the right? Well, I, I don't want to make strong statements about that. I, I remember I attended the Bucharest NATO summit and uh, 28 heads of states of, of NATO spent eight hours from eight o'clock in the, in the evening till four o'clock in, in the morning trying to convince Greece to, to change uh, uh, its position. And I participated in the debate, so what, what else to say? I, but you should you should have one currency together with with Greece. That would be that would be that would solve the problem. You know, I, I think it, but you should everyone should be consistent in his or her thinking because that that's that's a precondition for everything else. Suggest one currency to Greece, and and then we will see. Him. President, President okay. Klaus, my, my name is John Kunstadter, Radzima Photo. Um, two part question. One. Do you fear that your grandchildren's generation, which didn't live through the inefficiencies and degradation of socialism, will somehow become resigned to the pressure from Brussels? Uh, and second part of the question, if you were speaking to Ben Bernanke, would you ask him to stop? To whom? Ben Bernanke, Bernanke, the, the uh, chairman Fed, of the Fed. Chairman. Ben Bernanke. Uh -huh. You ask him to stop uh, pumping so much um, electronic money into the system, much of which is going to prop up European banks, which um, uh, perhaps ought to fail. Thank you. The first question was about the new generations. Um, uh, well, I not just in the Czech Republic. I, I am frustrated that the new generations uh, are not able to learn the lesson, and and um, simply uh, they they forgot our experience. And um, I, I expected that the, that the new EU member countries from Central and Eastern Europe would be able to oppose some of the. Of the of the centralistic uh, decisions in the in Brussels, but it didn't happen. It's, November, we also had a failure I, of the new I, generation. I, I am afraid that this is not the in November. <laughs> yes, yeah. 
You must make a systemic change in, in America as well. You know, that's that's, change why, that's why the Cato ex Institute exists. Yes. I don't want to 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 to. Um, to, to, but it's, that would be for another topic. I, I, I don't want to answer it with a simple question. I, I, I think I recently come across an acronym EMTF. Easy money, tough fiscal. As an acronym for one type of, of policy. Let's make a debate in Cato about, about uh, that, whether this is the solution to the, to, the, to the problems here in the United States of America and in Europe. I'm afraid not. So, so again, you can't solve the structural problem of a country by having an easy monetary policy, but, but that would be a different debate. I don't want to trivialize it. Uh, Michael Geary, a fellow at the uh, Wilson Center, the Woodrow Wilson Center here in DC. Uh, Professor Klaus, you were Prime Minister during the 1990s in your country, immediately after the Maastricht Treaty was signed. Uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said that after the Single European Act, she didn't fully understand what she was signing into law or agreeing uh, that Britain would follow. It seems to me that you don't clearly, or you didn't clearly understand the, the way that the integration process was going after Maastricht. I mean, did the pillar structured the, the add-on of, of EMU, and that you, you as, uh, as Prime Minister, uh, you know, forwarded a letter of application for, of your country to join the European Union in the 1990s, knowing that this was the direction in which the integration process was going, going to go, all new member states had to uh, accept the single currency if they wanted to join. So, I mean, you know, was there any stage in that process that you wanted to withdraw, given your views back then? But no. you, did, you are on record as saying that uh, the Czech Republic is ready today to join the European Union. Maybe the European Union is not ready for us. This is probably 1996. But have you, have you, did you back then mis misinterpret the direction the integration process was going? Well, when you say that we were not sufficiently following the developments in, in Europe, uh, in the communist era, you are right. You know, people like me were not allowed for 20 years, from 1968 to 1989, to to leave the country and to go to Germany or to the United States of America. So we were definitely not insiders. So don't criticize us for that. We looked at it at a at a distance. Maastricht Treaty was done in a moment when we were in the midst of our radical political, social, economic transformation. I must admit that we didn't pay sufficient attention to the Maastricht Treaty. We, we didn't have a chance at, at that moment. It was uh, two years after the fall of communism and we had other, other, issues, uh, other issues to solve. Nevertheless, I remember at that moment, um, uh, in the moment of the Maastricht Treaty, I was probably the first in, in Central and Eastern Europe who said, well, the, the slogans in, in the streets of Prague in the moment of the fall of communism were back to Europe. We definitely wanted to be again after half a century of communism a normal 
normal, whatever it means, European country. And uh, a normal European country means to participate in the European integration process, not to be friends with Lukashenko in Belarus, with Milosevic in Serbia. So we had no other chance than to participate in this process. But I, I made a strong statement, which may be partly the answer to your, to your question. I was very early, at the beginning of the 1990s, I tried to tell the Czech citizens, back to Europe is something else than, to, to use Italian, avanti into the European Union. If you, if you see that, that point, simply, I was afraid of entering the European Union. I expected all the consequences, I must say, but we had no other chance, simply, simply we wanted to be a normal European country with all the pluses and minuses. We've got time for just one more question. This gentleman right here. We have to stop already. Testing. Evan Woodham, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, uh, Evan Woodham, Competitive Enterprise Institute. My question is for both the panelists. Um, do you think, it seems to me that the issue is not so much the uh, existence of all these free trade laws and uh, integration, but more the problem of European socialism. Um, all, all the lowering of immigration barriers and uh, free trade within the European Union, or relative free trade, seems to have done wonders for um, European economic situation. Instead, it seems you have socialism, uh, it's just endemic across Europe that hangs like a storm cloud over it. And it seems that the uh, altruism and the collectivism that lies at the base of this um, economic socialism uh, seems to create, foster a dog-eat-dog -dog attitude through these uh, wealth redistribution schemes that drives these countries into huge debt and absolutely destroys uh, their economic situation. That makes the huge problems with the euro. For instance, you see uh, like Germany can't even deal with its debt. So my question for you, um, again, as I stated at the beginning, is do you think that the issue is more uh, European socialism and that's why the uh, European system is corrupt and overly bureaucratic? Okay, so in other, um, in other words, international liberalization, uh, intranational socialization. Uh, Yuri? <clears throat> well, the, there are countries that are uh, very socialist, as you would define them. Uh, in Scandinavia, Sweden has the most uh, equal income distribution uh, in the world um, and has uh, a highly progressive uh, uh, income tax, etc., less progressive than it used to be. They've moved some degree towards liberalization. Uh, but uh, uh, they have a very substantial welfare state, but they remain a uh, high-performing economy, one of the best, highest-performing economies in the world. And several other uh, Scandinavian states are in that, uh, in that situation. Um, so I, I don't think you can simply boil it down to uh, the uh, choice of uh, uh, the kind of state uh, that that countries want. Uh, some countries seem to be able to do quite well with a more uh, developed social safety nets. Other countries do very well 
without a well-developed social safety net, but they have uh, very, very different characteristics. Um, I, I really believe that the uh, heart of the issue in Europe right now is uh, to do not so much with the uh, kind of welfare state that they have, uh, but with the uh, macroeconomic and institutional arrangement that they have adopted. And uh, again, just to underscore, I see many of the limitations of uh, uh, and the problems created uh, by unifying the currency. At the same time, uh, I find it very, very difficult to see uh, any other way forward now uh, than to persevere uh, with it and uh, gradually uh, affect the reforms and execute the reforms that make the countries more capable of dealing with that, uh, with that particular constraint. President Klaus? Well, first, in, in my state introductory uh, comments, I said that there are two problems, the European economic and social system. I am ready to translate it into your term, European socialism, as one obstacle to any possible future development. And the second is the European uh, centralistic and bureaucratically intrusive European Union institutional arrangement. So I think that both, both those aspects created the, the, the current European turmoil. Uh, so, so I agree. So if, you, if, uh, if you, you would prefer to hear not the European economic and social system, but European socialism, I, I agree with you fully. Uh, I, but listening to Dr. Dadush, I, I, I find it very interesting that someone from France, the most socialist country in Europe, accuses some other countries in Europe of being socialist. That, that's for me very, very interesting. Really. <laughs> But never underestimate the French. Monsieur Pilon. I just want to remind you again uh, that uh, President Klaus's new book is out there. Um, please avail yourself of a discounted uh, uh, purchase. Uh, 